So now Republicans want to count all the votes in Pennsylvania. The lead starts right now. Nail-biter results in crucial races yet to be called the printing error, leading to a crunch to count votes, with the nonsense of the 2020 election lie playing out in real time as Pennsylvania Republicans eagerly count outstanding mail-in ballots. Then, the CDC says COVID cases in the U.S. tripled in just one month. From testing to treatments, what the White House is now saying about this new state of play. Plus, the startling reported evidence suggested, suggesting someone intentionally crashed a plane packed with passengers, causing China's deadliest air disaster in decades. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with breaking news, a dramatic sell-off on Wall Street as investors freak out over inflation and the distinct possibility of the U.S. economy sliding into a recession. The Dow Industrials lost more than 1,100 points. The broader S&P 500 and NASDAQ also falling sharply. Let's get right to CNN's Matt Egan. Matt, what specifically sparked today's sell-off? Well, Jake, the big fear is that inflation is so high that it's starting to eat into corporate profits. Retail giant Target gave investors a scare today by reporting a stunning drop in earnings, largely because of supply chain turmoil and rising costs. Target lost 25% of its value today alone, its worst day since Black Monday in 1987. And this comes just a day after Walmart sounded the inflation alarm, also suffering its worst day since 1987. The big concern here is that companies are having trouble passing along higher costs to consumers and that perhaps corporate profitability has peaked. And that's normally something you only see during big economic slowdowns. Put all this together, you have the S&P 500 losing the most in one day in, in, since June of 2020 in nearly two years, the Nasdaq plunging even deeper into a bear market. Uh, Jake, I should note that markets were up big yesterday, but these wild swings up one day, down the next, really do speak to the deep uncertainty about what comes next for the economy. And Matt, a, a new conference board uh, survey uh, suggests, uh, well, you know what, Let, let's, let's move on. Matt Egan, thank you so much. Turning to our politics lead in an election cliffhanger uh, in Pennsylvania in a race that could determine which party controls the U.S. Senate next year. Right now, Trump-backed Dr. Mehmet Oz is leading retired hedge fund executive Dave McCormick by the slimmest of margins, just over 2,100 votes in the Republican primary, with thousands of mail-in ballots yet to be counted. Now, the delayed results are partially due to a printing error on 22,000 mail-in ballots in Lancaster County that now have to be fixed by hand before they're counted. There are also thousands of other mail-in ballots still remaining to be counted, provisional, military, overseas ballots as well. It is worth pointing out, we do not know who won the GOP Senate primary in Pennsylvania because the margin is so thin and there are so many legal ballots that need to be counted. Legitimate ballots, legitimate ballots today, just as they were in 2020 for the presidential race. Now, Dr. Oz last night said, quote, when all the votes are counted, we win, unquote. But former President Trump is now urging Oz to take a page out of his anti-democracy playbook and just, quote, declare victory, unquote. Because as of now, without all the votes counted, Oz is ahead. The other major Republican race in Pennsylvania was not a close one. 
Doug Mastriano, one of the biggest backers of Trump's election lies and who tried to overturn the 2020 results and disenfranchise every voter in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, well, he easily won the Republican gubernatorial primary. If Mastriano wins, he will be in charge of appointing Pennsylvania's Secretary of State. The Secretary of State is the person in charge of elections in one of the nation's most important battlegrounds. CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports now from Delaware County. He's just outside Philadelphia with a closer look now at the neck and neck primary battle. Overtime in Pennsylvania, Dave McCormick. We're gonna win this campaign. And Dr. Mehmet Oz. When all the votes are tallied, I am confident we will win. Locked in an extraordinarily tight battle for the Republican Senate nomination with Dr. Oz holding a razor-thin edge of about 2,000 votes out of more than 1.3 million cast. A day after the election, both campaigns tell CNN they see a path to victory, with McCormick relying on mail-in votes still being counted, and Oz hoping his strength at the polls holds. In Lancaster County, election workers scrambled to sort through about 22,000 mail-in ballots, printed with an incorrect code that could not be scanned a process official said that could take all week. This campaign has always been about you. Kathy Burnett, whose candidacy surged in the final week of the race, fell short, but her imprint on the race was clearly a factor in the bitter duel between McCormick and Oz. After the counting, the race could head to a recount if the margin is one half of a percent or less. By next Tuesday, we'll have a good sense as far as whether or not there will be an automatic recount. Donald Trump, who loomed large in the race, weighed in today, saying Dr. Oz should declare victory. The winning Republican will face John Fetterman, who won the Democratic Senate race but is still recovering from a stroke with a defibrillator implanted on Election Day. John is going to be back on his feet in no time. The stage is set for a raucous general election in Pennsylvania, with Doug Mastriano winning the Republican governor's race, campaigning on a platform of lies about the 2020 election. There's this movement here that's going to shock the state here on November 8th. As some Republicans openly worried about Mastriano's prospects, party leaders expressed pleasure with results from North Carolina, as controversial Congressman Madison Cawthorn conceded defeat. And in the Senate race there, Ted Budd swept to victory. And friends, I want to thank President Donald J. Trump and... And Dr. Mehmet Oz was also thanking the former president for his endorsement in this race. But Jake, the counting is still going on here in Pennsylvania. At this moment, at least, Dr. Oz is leading by about 2,100 votes or so. But this is why this is still too close to call. There are uh, slightly more than 100,000 mail-in ballots and others uh, not yet counted. Now, all of them are not on the Republican side. Many Democratic ballots are in there as well. But we are here in Delaware County where there are 4,800 mail-in ballots. They are being processed as we speak. It will probably take a couple days or so, but the margin is so close, almost sure to be under that automatic a trigger for a recount. The margin would have to be about 6,000 votes or more. As of now, it's 2,000. But, Jake, this is what happens in close elections. Dr. Oz and the McCormick campaign think that this could take at least a week. Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny in Chester, Pennsylvania, thank you uh, so much. Let's discuss now uh, with our panel. Jonah Goldberg, let me start with you. Uh, are you surprised how close this race is between uh, Oz and McCormick? Uh, which candidate do you think stands a better chance against John Fetterman, uh, the Democratic uh, nominee? Um, well, 
I'm a little surprised. Um, I think that one of the great ironies of all of this, I mean, as you noted, is that they want to count every vote. But the interesting thing is, is that the more MAGA you are, the more you know Trump aligned you are, the less likely you are to trust mail-in voting. So that's why McCormick's team thinks they have an advantage is because they think more of their voters are uh, likely to have been mail-in voters rather than day of voters. Um, more broadly, I, I, my gut says that McCormick is the better bet um, against uh, against Fetterman because he's sort of a more traditional Republican who um, is less likely to sort of antagonize the freak out the suburbs and all that kind of thing. At the same time, you can't discount the the energy and passion of the Trump base, and presumably Trump would work harder for Oz, his endorsed candidate, uh, to win than he would work for McCormick. So it's it's yeah. anyone's guess at this point. Kirsten, on the Democratic side, uh, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman easily beat Congressman Connor Lamb, a, a moderate from the Pittsburgh area, for the Senate nomination. It's not going to be an easy general election for Fetterman. Uh, you know, there are a slew of issues Republicans are going to attack him on. It's going to be a tough year for Democrats. And then there's that 2013 incident where when he was a mayor, he thought he heard shots. He chased down and pulled a gun on an unarmed black jogger. Yeah, I mean, these are all obviously things that are problematic. And even if you just made him a generic Democrat, frankly, uh, it would be a very difficult, it's a very difficult terrain just because of what's happening in the country in terms of the economy and inflation and that Joe Biden's numbers are so low. So I think that, um, it, you know, it's it's hard to say, you, you do have to wait and see who uh, he would be running against. And also, um, if, say, if, if it was Dr. Oz, is he going to pivot, able be able to pivot away from some of the more extreme things that he's said? And the truth is, um, you know, even McCormick being the so-called establishment candidate, um, he's in, he's he, you know he he's refused to admit that Joe Biden is uh, actually our elected president. So, um, it, you know, it's pretty Trumpy, regardless of where you go. And, and in fact, McCormick went down to Mar-a-Lago to try and get Trump's endorsement. So, um, so I think we have to wait and see who wins on the Republican side, and then also uh, how how they behave in a general election. Jonah, let's talk about another key Pennsylvania race because Doug Mastriano won the Republican primary for governor. Mastriano was pictured, pictured outside the Capitol on January 6, 2021. He attempted to launch an Arizona-style partisan, not credible review of Pennsylvania's ballots. He wanted to disenfranchise every voter in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Now Republicans on Capitol Hill are, are warning that Mastriano might need to change his strategy. Senator Lindsey Graham said, quote, I don't think 2020 is what people are going to want to think about. Uh, what's your take on Mastriano? Uh, I think Mastriano, at least according to a lot of Republican strategists, is Italian for Sharon Angle. Um, I think he's an incredibly <laughs> problematic candidate, <laughs> and he is uh, going to create real, real problems for whoever the Republican Senate nominee is. Because are you going to campaign with a guy who's uh, you know an election denier and a conspiracy theorist and kind of a QAnon-adjacent character? Um, how does that work? You know, how do you separate yourself from that brand? And, you know, and frankly, you know, since I'm not really a partisan Republican, I am a conservative. Uh, there's a real worry that, you know, if that guy gets elected governor, um, he is simply not a reliable public leader for the 2024 election, which I think just a lot of 
you know, saner heads are just like dreading that possibility um, going forward. So I think he's, you know, he's a radioactive figure which will create problems, you know, will radiate out problems for other Republicans um, in the state. And you know that Trump is going to egg him on to keep up with all the, you know, election lie stuff. Jonah Goldberg, Kirsten Powers, thanks to both of you. Coming up, the first war crimes trial since the start of Russia's invasion. What we heard in witness testimony against a Russian soldier accused of killing an unarmed civilian, plus the risky moves many mothers are now being forced to make to substitute for the nation's baby formula shortage. Stay with us. Topping our world lead today, an expansion of NATO, perhaps Vladimir Putin's worst nightmare, is underway. Finland and Sweden have formally handed in their applications for membership. The NATO Secretary General calling it a historic step. This as the first Russian soldier charged with a war crime in Ukraine pleaded guilty today in Kyiv. Prosecutors say he killed an unarmed civilian back in February. Russian officials are calling the trial unacceptable and staged. As CNN's Melissa Bell reports for us now, some Ukrainians are concerned this trial could create backlash for the captured Mariupol fighters currently in Russian custody. Ukrainian and Russian prisoners of war now facing a reckoning. In a Kyiv courtroom too small for the 150 journalists who turned up, the first Russian soldier to be charged with a war crime pleaded guilty. Vadim Shishimarin led away after the hearing was suspended until a larger courtroom can be found. The 21-year-old is accused of killing an unarmed civilian, prosecutors say, after he and several other soldiers escaped a Ukrainian attack on their convoy in a stolen car. One of those Russian soldiers traveling with Shishimarin that day now expected to testify on Thursday. He was in the car with Shishimarin. He saw the moment of the shot. He saw Shishimarin fire. He saw how the bullet hit the victim and how the victim fell after that. That is, he was a direct witness to the crime. Over in Russian-held territory, meanwhile, the latest pictures released by the Russian Ministry of Defense showed some of those Ukrainian soldiers evacuated from the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol. Looking gaunt and dejected, they are now also prisoners of war. Qualified medical help is being provided to all the wounded. The norms of humanitarian law are basic for us, so no one should have any doubt about that. But will they be handed over as part of the prisoner swap that Ukraine had been hoping for? I want to emphasize, Ukraine needs Ukrainian heroes alive. To bring the boys home, the work continues. And this work needs delicacy and time. For now, though, they remain in the breakaway Donetsk People's Republic, its leaders suggesting on Wednesday that the fighters might now be put on trial. Comments mirrored by the Speaker of Russia's lower house of parliament in Moscow. Nazi criminals should not be exchanged. They're war criminals. We should do everything to ensure they are put on trial. The Russian side now claiming that the commanders of the Azovstal fighters are not amongst the evacuees, even as the fate of the surrendered soldiers takes a far murkier turn. Take the point is that the surrender of these Azovstal fighters to the Russian side essentially gives them leverage. And beyond that, the fall of Mariupol as a result of their surrender 
also changes the dynamic on the ground. What you're talking about is a huge swathe of Ukrainian territory now that goes from Crimea to the self-declared Donetsk and Luhansk republics that can be claimed by Russia. And that's what we've been seeing over the course of the last 24 hours. Russian positions pounding those uh, areas to the e west of Luhansk, to the north of Donetsk. And what it looks like they're trying to do now is fortify their positions, take the entire regions in order that they can claim that part of Ukraine as their own, Jake. All right, Melissa Bell reporting live for us from Kyiv. Thank you so much. Coming up, the new efforts to get vaccines for your young children as COVID cases rise. Stay with us. In our health lead, in just a few hours, the House of Representatives is expected to vote on two bills to address the baby formula shortage in this country. The legislation would provide $28 million in emergency funding to help alleviate the shortfall. The bills are expected to pass the House, but will need to be approved by the Senate. This all comes as some desperate moms are now turning to other moms for help by sharing breast milk. But is that safe? CNN's Elizabeth Cohen spoke to a pediatrician about the risks. Like many parents, Heather Nicholas is terrified, searching and searching near her home in Wesley Chapel, Florida, for baby formula for her five-month-old son, Roman. I don't have the formula that I need, so your mind doesn't stop thinking about it, especially at night. I hate to say, I've lost a lot of sleep. Desperate, Heather turned to social media. I had other local breastfeeding mothers who came to me and they were like, listen, you know, there's these groups. And in one of those groups, someone not too far away saw her plea. I have so much of a supply that I have a deep freezer that is um, absolutely full of milk. Callie Ayers, mom to five-month-old Elizabeth, has pumped so much extra milk that she wants to give it away to other moms. Putting myself into the shoes of those mothers um, is really what motivated me. Um, I can't imagine how scary that would be. So last week, Heather and Callie decided to meet in the parking lot of a nearby grocery store. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> I brought you a lot. This is full. <laughs> I think I could tell that she was very um, stressed out um, trying to figure out how to feed her baby so I could just see like the stress lift off of her. I'm gonna try not to cry right now. You can cry. I'm super emotional. Oh, can I give you a hug? Yes, you okay. can. <laughs> <laughs> I was in your shoes when my baby was first born. Heather and Callie aren't the only ones doing this. Facebook, full of parents sharing breast milk with one another. But the American Academy of Pediatrics doesn't recommend this kind of unregulated sharing. Its spokesperson saying the quality and safety of the milk cannot be assured. You're not going through the process of getting that breast milk screened for infectious diseases or getting screened for things like drugs. You also don't know how old that breast milk is. You don't know what the process has been to keep it refrigerated. Heather says she feels comfortable with Callie. She was upfront about her situation and her lifestyle, her diet, all sorts of things. And was relieved to give Roman his first bottle of Callie's milk. If I can't find a donor per se for milk for him, then what's my next option? Now, because of the infant formula shortage, the American Academy of Pediatrics is telling parents of children six months and older that whole cow's milk 
may be an option before they said wait till the first birthday. Jake? Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. Also on our health lead, the White House holding its first White House coronavirus briefing since the beginning of April. This comes as the CDC says COVID cases have tripled in the past month. Joining us now, Dr. Paul Offit, who's on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee and the director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Offit, right now additional COVID funding is stalled in Congress. This comes as the White House has warned that 100 million Americans could be infected with coronavirus this winter. I want you to take a listen to this warning from Dr. Ja, the White House COVID response coordinator. Without additional funding from Congress, we will not be able to buy enough vaccines for every American who wants one once these new generation of vaccines come out in the fall and winter. What, what could that do to case numbers if not everyone is able to get a vaccine this fall who wants one? Well, certainly cases are increasing. Um, the good news is we have probably about 95% population immunity from people who've been vaccinated or naturally infected or both. So what you're seeing is, although you're seeing case numbers increase, what you're not seeing is, is much of an increase in hospitalization, a little increase in hospitalization, but virtually no increase in deaths, which is what you would expect. You're getting protection against serious illness but you're not getting very good protection against mild illness. What, what worries me is that, that a variant would arise that, is, that resists protection against serious illness. Were that to be true, we would need a variant-specific vaccine to be given to the entire population. And you want to make sure you have money in place to be ready were something like that to occur. Yesterday, the FDA approved the use of a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine, a booster for kids ages 5 to 11, the FDA did not consult its vaccine advisory committee as it has done for other vaccine decisions, saying, quote, the FDA concluded that the request did not raise questions that would benefit from additional discussion by committee members. Does that strike you as odd in any way? Well, I'm on that committee, so I, I right. actually wish that they had consulted us. Uh, the reason being that that um, so we've now recommended, the FDA has recommended a third dose. That'll go to the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices in the next couple of days, and we'll see how they weigh in. But, you know, there's been a little bit of mission creep here. During today's press conference, Dr. Walensky said accurately that these vaccines continue to protect against serious illness, but that if we're trying to get protection against even all symptomatic illness, even mild illness, now you're talking about frequent boosting, which is a little bit of mission creep from where we started, which was protection against serious illness. So that needs to be explained to the American public. And the good news about having an FDA vaccine advisory committee meeting is that's open to the public, it's transparent, and you can hear those discussions, which can inform your decision. Dr. Jha also said today that the FDA is moving with, quote, urgency to get a vaccine approved for the kids under five. We've been in this pandemic for more than two years. There's been a vaccine widely available for adults for over a year. How do we still not have a shot for young kids under five? Well, it's not as easy as it sounds. I mean, we, we tend to group people at some level arbitrarily. So the, the six-month-old to five- or six-year-old are all in one group. But it may be that the dose that's given is not the same for each of those different uh, ages. And so you need to prove that. And that does take time. So we'll see. The, I know that Moderna has already submitted with their two-dose data. Uh, Pfizer's in the midst of a three-dose trial. I suspect we're likely to hear about that at the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee in June. But we'll see. The White House saying today that they're looking into cases of COVID rebound after individuals take Paxlovid. Paxlovid is a coronavirus therapeutic, a treatment drug. Some people are reporting experiencing a return of COVID symptoms after finishing the five-day regimen of Paxlovid. 
Do you advise people to take Paxlovid? Yeah, I mean, if if they're um, if they're older and certainly have uh, more comorbidities or health problems that put them at risk of serious disease, absolutely. Um, remember, the the antivirals aren't antibiotics. I mean, antibiotics can kill bacteria. Antivirals don't kill viruses. So what it does is it decreases the virus's capacity to reproduce itself. So when you stop, there may still be some virus particles around that can still reproduce themselves, but. And this has been reported even in the package insert. There was a, a uh, essentially rebound of about two percent, which, when you now give the vaccine, give the uh, product to you know to tens of thousands of people, now you're seeing you know many people that are having this problem. But again, it's still uh, although there's a rebound, it's still not nearly as severe as, as uh, had you not treated. Dr. Paul Offit, thanks so much. Good to see you. Coming up next, what we're learning: the suspected Buffalo shooter did just minutes before his deadly racist rampage and the federal legislation moving quickly on Capitol Hill in the wake of his attack. Stay with us. In our national lead, an invitation to watch a horrific massacre. Chilling new details show the alleged gunman in the Buffalo supermarket terrorist attack sharing his plans with others online using a private communications app approximately 30 minutes before opening fire and killing 10 people. The suspect's chat log also revealing that he claims to have scouted the Buffalo grocery store in March and planned his attack for one of the busiest times at the store that he targeted because it's in a predominantly black neighborhood. CNN's Brian Todd is in Buffalo with the latest on the investigation. 30 minutes before the Buffalo mass shooting, the suspect revealed his plans to a small group on social media. In the gamer chat room app Discord, he invited a select group to access the private diary he had been keeping for six months. The chat log shows he chose the zip code in Buffalo because of a high percentage of black people. He visited the supermarket three times on March 8th, surveying its layout, drawing a map, and taking note of how many black customers and white customers were there. And he planned his attack for March 15th, but delayed it several times. It's coming to light now that this person planned this very methodically. Discord says their records show no one saw the chat prior to 30 minutes before the shooting. One former FBI special agent believes the posts were intended to recruit others. He was trying to radicalize other people just like he was radicalized online. I think we're going to learn who his contacts were. That's critical right now because we don't know who else is out there that's a potential threat to this community or some community somewhere else in, in the United States or elsewhere. And today, New York's governor asking her attorney general to investigate the social media platforms the suspect posted on. These social media platforms have to take responsibility. They must be more vigilant in monitoring the content and they must be held accountable for favoring engagement over public safety. She also called for tighter gun control and established a domestic threat assessment program for the state. We're going to ensure that we have the best in the nation's cybersecurity teams to monitor the places where radicalization occurs. We're watching you now. In Washington, House Democrats planning a vote tonight on a bill that would set up FBI and DHS offices to monitor and analyze domestic terrorism threats, including white supremacists and neo-Nazis. But concerns over civil liberties have Republicans lukewarm. Also today, authorities revealed that one 911 call during the incident was mishandled, although they say it did not affect how fast police responded. The caller spoke in a whisper. Our intention is to terminate 
the 911 call taker who acted totally inappropriately, not following protocol. We, we, we teach our 911 call takers that if somebody's whispering, it probably means they are in trouble. Today, the 10 victims killed and the three who survived were honored by members of the Buffalo Bills football team who came to pay their respects, show their support for the community, and help distribute food outside the shuttered grocery store. The suspect is scheduled to appear in court tomorrow for a pretrial felony hearing, which will likely in part determine whether this case goes to a grand jury. The Erie County Sheriff says there are cameras in the suspect's cell and he's on suicide watch. Also, the first funerals for the victims will be held this Friday. Jake. Ryan Todd in Buffalo, New York. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss is the senator from New York, one of them, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Uh, senator, thanks so much for joining us. You visited Buffalo uh, with President Biden yesterday, you placed flowers at the memorial outside the Topps grocery store where this horrific shooting occurred. You met with the families of the victims. Tell us how the community is doing after this horrific attack. The community in Buffalo is reeling. They are trying to deal with extraordinary anger and sadness and fear about the future. And so having President Biden and First Lady Biden come to not only empathize, but to comfort them and to tell them that this is a fight that they are committed to. Uh, we have to get justice for these victims and their families. We have to make sure we go after um, these large magazines and military-style assault weapons and better background checks. And we have to go after white supremacy as, as truly the domestic terrorism that it is. Um, white supremacy has grown. Um, these white supremacist extremist groups have grown. Uh, they grew under the Trump administration. Uh, many of them culminated in the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. And through the Internet and these platforms, uh, we have people who have gone down these rabbit holes and have themselves become extremists. And so we need to take action across the board. And it's the least we can do for these families in this community that is suffering. The House is set to vote today on a bill aimed at tackling domestic terrorism. It calls for assessments of the threats posed by white supremacist groups and neo-Nazis. Republican House leadership is telling its members to vote against the bill. It will still probably pass the House. Will it have enough Republican support to pass in the Senate, do you think? And what do you think of the legislation? Does it, does it accomplish what it needs to? I haven't looked at the House legislation, but I do know uh, through my work on the Intel Committee that the FBI has pr prioritized domestic terrorism and has actually gone into these different uh, white supremacy groups and not only monitored them for this type of illegal activity, um, but monitoring uh, how it is spread. And so the work is being done, and I think if we give them more resources, as well as designating uh, neo-Nazism and white supremacists as uh, domestic terrorist ideologies. I think that helps because it's not about free speech. It is about people using terrorist activities and crimes to kill innocent people. And so we have to create a better framework about how to protect people and how to give law enforcement more tools. The suspected gunman uh, was taken in for a mental health evaluation last year uh, after he wrote in a high school essay that he intended to commit a murder or suicide. Police asked him about it. He claimed he was just joking and the matter was dropped. And then he was able to buy an AR-15 to allegedly commit this mass murder. Now, as you know, 
the Empire State, New York State, has a red flag law under which state police or high school staff or his family members could have requested that he not be permitted to purchase a firearm under what's called an extreme risk protective order. No one did that. The tools were there. How does the system need to improve, do you think? Well, first of all, I think those requests should have been made and there should have been a red flag placed on his identity so that when he went in to buy a far firearm, it could have been denied. Um, but there's also a problem, Jake, with an 18-year-old being able to buy a military-style weapon that our members of the military trained for years on to use appropriately and safely. This individual should never be eligible for buying a military-style assault weapon that, with a clip from Canada, could kill 10 people within one one minute. Uh, that is the challenge here. We had a law enforcement, um, retired law enforcement officer as the security guard. He was able to fight back and police were on the scene within one minute. But despite all that, because of the weapon he had, he was able to kill 10 people so quickly. We need to ban those military style assault weapons. Uh, I have lots more questions on that, but there are a couple other topics we need to get to. One of them uh, today, the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee is announcing a bipartisan agreement to provide care to veterans who were exposed uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq to toxic burn pits. You and Republican Senator Marco Rubio have been working together. You've been out in front on this important issue for a long time. How will this bill impact the more than 3.5 uh, people who've been exposed to toxins while serving in the military? So it is ground changing. It is so important for our veterans and our active duty service members. Unfortunately, because of the war on terror over the last 20 years, our service members have been put in harm's way all across the globe in places that where they were stationed, they opened up burn pits and threw every type of material to be burned, any kind of waste, human waste, medical waste, building materials, computers, clothing, everything. And those toxins were lit on fire with jet fuel. And if you can imagine, that's the same toxic mix that was at 9-11 when the towers fell. And so we know from that experience that when you breathe in these horrible toxins, you get terrible disease and cancers. That's what's happening to our service members in their 30s and 40s. And so we now have legislation that is going to be voted on in the next couple of weeks to actually make a presumption that their health care will be covered. This is enormously important. This is justice for people who deserve it, and we will be able to now get them the life-saving care that they are often denied. I want to have you and Senator Rubio on to discuss this because it's so important. Thank you so much, Senator Gillibrand. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up next, the new report suggesting someone deliberately, deliberately crashed a passenger plane. Stay with us. And our world lead flight data from a Chinese plane crash that killed all 132 people on board in March suggests it was an intentional act. That's according to a new report in the Wall Street Journal today. CNN aviation correspondent Pete Montine joins us now live. Pete, the report also says it's unclear who may have caused the crash, but it cites a preliminary assessment indicating the plane deliberately nosedived into a mountain. How would investigators know that? Well, Jake, this Wall Street Journal reporting is coming from those in the U.S. familiar with the flight data recorder on board Flight 5735. Remember that the Chinese sent the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder here to Washington for analysis. And what is so interesting about this whole notion that this could have been a deliberate act is that it's only confirmed the suspicions that aviation experts had in the early days after this crash. What was so telling to them was that vertical dive, that video where you saw that plane plunging 
from 29,000 feet, its cruising altitude, in less than two minutes' time, it ran into a Chinese mountainside. All 132 people on board were killed. The Wall Street Journal, a source telling them that the plane did what it was supposed to do because of somebody in the cockpit. Now the question is whether or not that person was a passenger or whether or not that person was a pilot. Remember that China Eastern insists that its pilots before this flight were in good health. They also had no family or financial drama. What we'll really be telling here is what's on the cockpit voice recorder. That will show the communications not only between the pilots and air traffic control, but also over the intercom between the pilots themselves. Also, the ambient noise, and that could be so key in determining whether or not there was any sort of struggle on board. It's the Chinese who are leading this investigation, and the Chinese Civil Aviation Authority insists its investigation will be rigorous and scientific, so still a lot more to come out here, Jake. All right, Pete Montin, thanks so much. Appreciate it. The historic deal announced today, finally giving professional women's soccer players equal pay to their male counterparts. I'm going to talk to a former star player about why this is only a small step in this decades-long fight. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, as one woman soccer player put it, quote, there are going to be girls who are going to grow up and see what we've accomplished and recognize their value instead of having to fight to see it themselves. The women's soccer team win. That is a potential victory beyond the field. Plus, the pain at the pump about to get even worse. Now there's talk we could soon be looking at average prices of $6 a gallon. And leading this hour, a small sign of hope in Ukraine as the American flag is raised above the U.S. Embassy in Kyiv. The flag marks the reopening of the facility that was evacuated in February before the start of the unprovoked Russian invasion of Ukraine. From the capital to the south and the critical port city of Odessa, along Ukraine's Black Sea coast, where a fancy hotel, once enjoyed by Russian tourists, now lays in ruins, as CNN Sarah Seidner reports for us now, the owner now says the only way he will allow Russians back to his hotel is if they're the ones cleaning it up. The hotel is called Grand Petine. In Italian, it means a big shell. Most of the guests came here because it's 30 meters from the beach. We're right on the beautiful Black Sea. Let's go. I'll show you what happened after the missile strike. His security cameras caught the missile strike as it happened. This is the first time it's been seen by the public. This is at full speed. Then we slowed it down. You can see the missile low and straight from the direction of the Black Sea, where Russia has been launching its attacks on Odessa. So there was a direct attack from a missile right into your hotel, and no one was hurt or died. Thank God no one was injured here, because normally in this place, there were always children and parents. His once pristine seaside hotel used to be a favorite of Russian tourists and politicians. They spent good money here in the years before the war. He doesn't want to admit it, but he himself was once a member of the pro-Russian party here. This is destroyed. You blame the Russian soldiers and Putin. What did you think of Russians before this? Since 2014, I felt they were bastards, but I didn't want to believe in that. 2014 was the year Russia invaded and annexed Crimea. 2022, the rest of Ukraine came under attack. Why do you think the Russians hit this hotel? 
I can't explain this. There were no military, no mercenaries, no terrorists, no Ukrainian Nazis. There was no one like that here. Will Russians ever be allowed to come back here and stay at this seaside resort? I can only allow them to come back if they are taken prisoner and forced to rebuild. And Jake, you will hear this time and time again. This place, Odessa, there were many people who were very close to Russia and had very friendly ties from tourism companies that made tons of money on Russian tourists to the mayor himself, who was a part of a, a, a Russian party, if you will, a pro-Russian party. But more and more, as this place keeps getting hit, that sentiment has changed and it has changed greatly. Most people will tell you this is now a European city and they banish any of that talk about being friendly with Russia. Jake. Sarah Seidner reporting live for us from Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Turning now to Moscow and a rare public rebuke of Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine from within Russia. As CNN's Matthew Chance reports for us now, the mood in Russia has seemingly begun to shift as prominent figures warn the whole world is actually against them. Defenders of Ukraine turned prisoners of war. Latest images released by the Russian military of Ukrainian forces surrendering after their defiant stand, some limping with wounds or exhaustion. As one of this conflict's most gruelling battles at the Azovstal steelworks in Mariupol finally draws to a close. Nearly a thousand Ukrainians have surrendered so far, Russia's defense ministry spokesman announces triumphantly, before detailing Russia's latest rocket attacks and what he says are U.S.-supplied weapons on the battlefield. As ever, no hint of any problems or setbacks in what Russia still refuses to even call a war. Shocking then that Kremlin-controlled television would allow Russia's special military operation to be ripped apart on air by a respected military commentator and former Russian colonel who pulls no punches. Let's not take information tranquilizers, the retired colonel advises, and pretend Ukraine's armed forces are nearing a crisis of morale, because that's not even close to reality, he says. The pro-Kremlin anchor pushes back, saying there have been individual cases that show otherwise. But the colonel is insistent. With European military aid now coming into full effect, he says, a million Ukrainian soldiers could soon join the fight. While frankly, the situation for Russia, he says, will get worse. It is scathing. But he went on. We are geopolitically isolated. The whole world is against us, even if we don't want to admit it, he says. Telling millions of Russians who get their news from this state channel, what many of them, given the international sanctions on Russia, must already suspect. Recent days have seen the official veil of denial slipped too. Like when the pro-Kremlin Chechen leader, whose forces have been fighting in Ukraine, tried to tell Russian students 
What's really going on there? We're fighting Ukrainian nationalists backed by NATO, and the West is arming them, he says. That's why our country is finding it so difficult there, he reveals. Though it's a good experience, he says. Not the experience, though, Vladimir Putin, who presided over a slightly muted annual Victory Day parade earlier this month, is likely to have expected when he sent his troops across the border. Russia hasn't lost its latest war, but expectations of a quick and easy win are being rowed back. So, Jake, no victory, no defeat, just a long, protracted war. That's what Russia seems to be knuckling down to do. It's also doubling down on that international isolation that the retired colonel mentioned, expelling dozens of European diplomats tonight in what the Italian prime minister has called a hostile act. Back to you. Matthew Chance reporting live for us from London. Thank you so much. It took four World Cup wins and years of fighting for women's soccer to finally get paid the same as the men's team. We're going to talk to the goalie for the 99 World Cup championship team, Brianna Scurry. Then, how do you fight multiple wildfires when there's not enough water for even drinking or farming? Stick around. In our sports lead, an historic agreement for U.S. soccer and equal pay, the men's and women's U.S. national teams will both now receive equal pay and equal prize money, including at World Cups, becoming the first soccer federation in the world to adopt that policy, as CNN's Bryn Gingrass reports. It has been a long fight for equal pay for the women of U.S. soccer, and they only had to win four World Cups to the men's team's zero to get there. It's a game-changing deal. I am just so incredibly proud of what we've achieved In a new contract, U.S. soccer women and men's player associations agreeing to equal pay for all players. This is just a really historic moment um, that will hopefully lead to meaningful changes and progress, not only here at home in the U.S., but around the world. Both men and women will now get around $450,000 a year. Commercial and event revenue will be divvied up. The team's also shaking hands on sharing World Cup prize money, a first of any soccer organization in the world. That part of today's agreement especially notable. As the women's team clinched the last two World Cups, four overall, the men haven't won yet, but were still making more money just for playing. The women's 2015 win netted less than $2 million, while the men made more than $5 million, losing in the round of 16 the year before. That propelled a movement for equal pay captured in the CNN film LFG. We heard people chanting. Oh my gosh, that's when I felt the movement. All right, it's not just us, but it looks as if the world is on our side. Today's deal is the culmination of that battle between the U.S. Soccer Federation and prominent members of the U.S. women's team who filed a federal wage complaint in 2016 and a gender discrimination lawsuit in 2019. Every time a woman is not paid equally, sort of everyone is not and and nobody's potential is able to be reached. Players settled the suit earlier this year for $24 million. It is a huge win for us, for women's sports, for women in general. Um, And it's a moment that we can all celebrate. 
The men's team backed the women's efforts in that lawsuit. And today, player Walker Zimmerman saying... Sure, there was a potential chance of making less money. No doubt about it. Um, But we also believe so much in the women's team. We believe in uh, the whole premise of equal pay. And ultimately, that was a big driving force for us. This comes at a pivotal time as the men head to Qatar later this year for the 2022 World Cup. The hope is this deal sets precedent in international sports and beyond. And this deal also encompasses child care, parental leave, mental health wellness, issues at the heart of so many discussions about uh, workplace benefits. In addition, U.S. soccer hopes this will incentivize its players to generate even more revenue because, of course, now, Jake, it's shared. All right, Bryn Gingras, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss two-time Olympic gold medalist and legendary U.S. women's soccer goalkeeper, Brianna Scurry. She's the author of the upcoming book, My Greatest Save, the brave barrier-breaking journey of a world champion goalkeeper. Thanks so much for joining us. It's exciting to have you on. So you were a member of the iconic 99 World Cup championship team that really catapulted women's soccer to new heights. Uh, Earlier this year, the women's national team reached an equal pay agreement, but this deal goes even farther than that one, uh, equally splitting tournament prize money and more. Since the FIFA World Cup, uh, Women's World Cup was established in 91, the U.S. team, the women's team, has won it half the time emotionally, how does today's victory compare to the one that you had on the field in 99? <laughs> hey, Jake, great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I have to tell you, it's it's right up there. You know, uh, this battle for equal pay has been going on for decades, and my 99 team and the 96 team as well before that have all been uh, parts of the foundation of, of trying to get us there. And so it's so gratifying now to have this happen today. I mean, I am overjoyed. I am so happy for the women. I'm happy for the men. And it's so amazing now because all the all the players can um, be in the same boat and going in the same direction. There's always been confrontation and difficulty and adverse ad, adverse adverse conditions with the Federation uh, for both the men's and the women's unions. And now we're all in the same boat in agreement um, as opposed to Uh, being against one another. So this is an amazing historic day. And uh, I have to tell you, I really appreciate what uh, Walker Zimmerman, um, how he led his men's team, how Megan Rapino and uh, Alex Morgan led the women's team and how Cindy Parlocone, a former teammate of mine on the 99ers, uh, led U.S. soccer to this point. The deal also attempts to erase a disparity that's beyond the control of U.S. soccer. That's the significant difference in prize money awarded for the men's and the women's World Cups, which is, that's governed by FIFA. Um, That's an extraordinary move. The U.S. is the first to do it. Do you think other countries are going to follow suit? I sure hope so, Jake. I I mean, this this is truly a watershed moment, in my opinion. And I really think that this this, um, framework can definitely be something moving forward that other federations can consider because the mandate of a federation is to grow the game for, for young boys and girls, for everyone in their country. And I think because we've come together in this unique way and the men's team agreeing to do this, I think this definitely could be a, a contention of, of a new way to go about doing these agreements in other countries going forward. So the disparity, I should note, has not just been in pay. The women's team is much better than the men's team in the United States. 
Do you think this would have happened if that were not the case? Um, I don't think so, Jake. I think that was definitely a huge element of this deal. It always has been one of the things we've been able to fall back on and mention in the fact that we win a lot of things. We've won four Olympic gold medals. We've won four World Cups. And so the tradition of winning is there. And because of that tradition of winning, all these sponsors were getting on board because they also wanted to be associated with us. And so we were also able to really... I'm sorry. We were really able to move the game forward um, because of that. And so I think now we're all on the same page. And uh, that was definitely a factor. All right, Brianna Scurry, great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. She's the author of the upcoming book, My Greatest Save, The Brave Barrier-Breaking Journey of a World Champion Goalkeeper. Thanks so much again. Coming up, while the women's Thanks, soccer Kate. team finally gets equal pay, women in Afghanistan are learning what it's like when 20 years of progress, however, however minor, is wiped out overnight. CNN is in Kabul with a look at women's education under the Taliban. Plus, the Pennsylvania Senate primary that is still too close to call, almost 24 hours later, how some Republicans are changing their tune about counting ballots. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the Pennsylvania primary election is stretching into overtime. All eyes are on the thousands of ballots still waiting to be counted. As of now, Dr. Mehmet Oz holds a razor-thin lead over former hedge fund CEO Dave McCormick in the Commonwealth's Republican Senate primary race. Let's get right to CNN's Athena Jones. She's live in Lancaster County where there was a printing error that preventing, prevented scanning machines from reading some ballots. Athena, you, you spoke with the chair of the Board of Elections today. How is the vote count process going? Well, Jake, they're moving at a pretty fast clip. If you think about the fact that it was yesterday morning that they discovered about 22,000 of those misprinted ballots printed with the wrong codes so they couldn't all be read by scanners. Those had to be remarked by hand so that they could be scanned, remarked on a new ballot so they could be scanned. They were able to do about 7,000 yesterday. Today, another about 10,000. So they only have about four or 5,000 ballots remaining. You look behind me, things are beginning to wrap up here, but they only have about four or 5,000 ballots to do tomorrow, which they expect to finish this count here in Lancaster County tomorrow. And the reason they've been able to go so quickly is because earlier in the day, all of these tables were filled with uh, 50 to 60 county staff, uh, election officials, and election volunteers, all of whom are working in, in teams of three to remark these ballots in, in a way that they could be observed. You also had uh, uh, representatives from each of the parties, Oz and McCormick's par uh, representatives, as well as Democrat and Republican parties, uh, watching what was going on today, uh, just to ensure, uh, as the Board of Elections chair put it, integrity, veracity, and transparency. Uh, but they're feeling really good about the progress they've made today. Athena, there are several other counties in Pennsylvania that are still counting ballots, not because of any printing errors, but because there are mail-in ballots still to be counted, right? That's right. You know, the, the Secretary of State in an interview earlier today said that last night only about half of Pennsylvania's 67 counties managed to complete counting all of their ballots, and not because of a specific error, but because lots and lots of people were voting by mail. And under Pennsylvania law, they're not allowed to even open these ballots until 7 a.m. on Election Day. That is why they were late in discovering the error here in Lancaster County, and that is why in some of these other counties where a bunch of people uh, voted by mail, uh, they're, still, they're still moving through, through those ballots. Jay? 
All right, Athena Jones in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's discuss this all with CNN's Abby Phillip and uh, Casey Hunt. Uh, Abby, establishment Republicans are breathing a sigh of relief uh, now that the primary winner is going to be either Dr. Oz or Dave McCormick, neck and neck right now. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell today told CNN, quote, um, my view is that either way, this turns out, we're fully competitive in Pennsylvania and ready to win in November. So, so what happened to Kathy Barnett? That Fox News poll showing this giant Barnett surge really had an impact on the race, but it yeah. sure didn't come to fruition. Yeah, I mean, I think that that last minute surge for Barnett actually may have um, per perhaps produced the opposite effect. Uh, that for some Pennsylvania voters and the, the contingent of the Pennsylvania Republican Party that is kind of in the old sort of Pat Toomey mold, uh, maybe that 35% plus, uh, they really came out for McCormick. But it was also coupled, and this is what I'm hearing from Republicans, coupled with, uh, with what seems to have also happened, which is that the two candidates who were trying to lay the most claim to Trump's uh, to, you know, to, to be Trump's heir, uh, Dr. Oz, who has Trump's endorsement, and Kathy Barnett, they actually ended up splitting that Trump vote. Uh, we we kind of know that because in the governor's race on the Republican side, uh, Mastriano did not split the Trump vote. He really took it home, and no one candidate uh, in the Trump, the sort of most Trumpy mold, was able to do that. And that is why Oz is now running uh, really neck and neck with. Uh, with David McCormick, when I think in the absence of Kathy Barnett's rise, he probably would have had a better chance of being further ahead right now. Casey, in the final days of the election, Kathy Barnett was campaigning with Doug Mastriano, who did, as Abby just noted, go on to win Pennsylvania's Republican primary race for governor. If he wins the general election, he would be tasked with appointing the Secretary of State, and he would himself would certify Pennsylvania's 2024 presidential election results. And this is a, this is a candidate who, just, just to say it plain, he pushes election lies, he pushed for a resolution to toss out Biden's win in Pennsylvania, he pushed to disenfranchise almost 7 million Pennsylvania voters. How do you see this playing out? Well, and as you point out, Jake, whoever becomes governor of Pennsylvania potentially plays a critical role in the race for the White House in 2024 as they make a selection for secretary of state. When we've seen elections and the counting of, of ballots become this political issue that Republicans are pushing, it's political because Republicans are, are lying about it, generally speaking. So this is going to be a really critical race. Now, I've seen a couple things going on. One Democrats actually kind of encouraged uh, Mastriano here at the end. Josh Shapiro, the Democratic candidate uh, who is their nominee for governor, uh, there, were, there was money spent uh, to essentially cast Mastriano as a Trump voter, to tr uh, as a Trump supporter, to try and, and gin up support for him because they think that running against him is going to be the easiest path to a Democratic victory. There are a lot of Republicans in, in the state of, Pen excuse me, the Commonwealth, I should correct myself with you, Jake, of Pennsylvania, uh, <laughs> who uh, do not think uh, that, who, who don't support Mastriano, who don't think he can win. But, you know, there's a lot of thinking like that in 2016 when Donald Trump was running for the Republican nomination and look what happened there. So there are some Republicans who are saying, you know what, this was, you shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have tried to help this guy get elected because now we could be faced uh, with someone who is going to be in this position uh, to push election lies. So that's a little bit of the conversation uh, that's going on right now behind the scenes. Abby, down in North Carolina, Senator Tom Tillis is also breathing a sigh of relief now that 
Congressman Madison Cawthorn has been denied a, a second term. Republican efforts to stop Cawthorn, despite Trump's support, really worked this time. What does it tell you that they went after Cawthorn and not so many other Republican House members that arguably have done and said more offensive things, more bigoted things? Maybe maybe on the said more bigoted things part of it, but I think that that's actually the point. They were willing to go after Cawthorn because they really just didn't like the guy. They thought that he embarrassed them. They thought that he uh, sort of made a mockery of the institution. In a lot of ways with Cawthorn, it was very personal. But I mean, I do think that there were some things about Cawthorn that were kind of unique. I mean, he was repeatedly uh, kind of bringing weapons where he wasn't supposed to be bringing weapons. He had these uh, videos that, frankly, came right out of the, the oppo files uh, that were put out there in, with the intention of torpedoing his political career. I think Republicans on the Hill felt like uh, they needed to deal with Cawthorn before he became even more of a problem for them. And he is in his mid-20s. He is young. And he clearly uh, did not have the political support to withstand this kind of a full throttle assault. And so it honestly, in some ways, it's low hanging fruit for these Republicans in Congress. It's really an open question whether they see this as a case study for how they can uh, potentially bring in line some of the other members who they might think are problematic, maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene, maybe Lauren Boebert. But I think really that remains to be seen because those others are just a lot more difficult. They don't actually have quite as much baggage as Madison Cawthorn did at the end of the day. Casey and Abby, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Good to see you guys. $4.50 for a gallon of gas may be considered cheap by August. The shocking gas price prediction. That's next. Our money lead, it was only Monday of last week that we were telling about warnings that gas prices could hit $4.50 a gallon. Well, I hate to tell you this, but $4.50, it's already in the rearview mirror. Today's national average from AAA is $4.57 a gallon. That's up 17 cents a gallon from a week ago. Now, this time last year, gas was just over $3 a gallon. Let's bring in CNN's Matt Egan. Uh, Matt, um, we're seeing now predictions of $6 a gallon as the national average by August. Six. Is that going to also come true and, and perhaps even sooner than predicted? Yeah, Jake, the idea of $6 gas just a few months ago is sort of unthinkable. But now J.P. Morgan is saying that this could be a reality by the end of the summer. The problem is that gasoline supplies are very low and demand is really high as Americans get back to traveling again. And that means prices have nowhere to go but up. And they are going up, as you mentioned, the national average hitting a fresh record of four fifty-seven a gallon, up 48 cents in the past month. It's now 28% more expensive to fill up your tank than it was the day before Russia invaded Ukraine. Six states are now at $5 a gallon or more, including Washington State, Nevada, and California, which is now above $6 a gallon for the first time ever. And cheap gas is increasingly hard to find. There are, as of this week, no states that are below $4 a gallon. Now, I want to stress that no one can say exactly how this is going to play out not even J.P. Morgan. And some experts that I talked to, they're skeptical that we'd ever actually get to $6 a gallon, mostly because some people would just refuse to pay that. People who have options, and not everyone does, but 
Some people would choose to drive less or carpool or work from home or dust off the bike in their garage. And so that would uh, ease demand. But the point is, is that gas prices are higher and some fear they're going even higher. Let's turn to something else that we purchased by the gallon, milk. The latest government numbers show that milk is up by almost 15% in the last year. That's the biggest change since 2008. Recent analysis of milk prices in the UK points to prices rising by 50% compared to 2020. Could that happen here? Well, Jake, uh, there's no doubt that U.S. farmers, uh, much like farmers in the U.K., are facing real challenges right now. Uh, Fertilizer costs are through the roof. Feed costs are up significantly. Diesel prices are at record highs. And the war in Ukraine is making all of that worse. And as you mentioned, milk prices here in the United States rising at the fastest pace since 2008. But I do think it's important to remember that milk is heavily subsidized in the United States, so that does help ease some of the price pressures. And also, the USDA is forecasting that milk production will increase slightly this year and next. But I think bigger picture, whether it's milk or food or car prices, there's a cost of living crisis in the United States and around the world. And I think that the longer the war in Ukraine lasts, the more pressure we're going to see on inflation. All right, Matt Egan, thanks so much. Appreciate it. A look at life has, how life has changed for women and girls in Afghanistan after the Taliban's takeover. We're going live to Kabul next. In our world, leave plenty of blame to go around. A scathing new watchdog report released this week from the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction says both the Trump and Biden administrations share responsibility and blame for the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, which led to the collapse of the Afghan military and Afghan government. CNN's Oren Lieberman joins us now live from the Pentagon. Oren, the report also blames decisions made by the then Afghan president. What are you learning? Jake, the number one reason this report concluded that the Afghan military collapsed and the Afghan government in breathtaking speed last summer was because of the U.S. decision to withdraw. And it blames both the Trump administration for signing the Doha agreement with the Taliban that started the process of the withdrawal and then blames the Biden administration for carrying it out. It says those two, one after the other, crushed the morale of the Afghan military, the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces, one after the other, and that led to a crumbling, slowly but surely, then very quickly all at the end, of the Afghan military as the Taliban swept across the country. Now, the report also does blame former Afghan President Ashraf Ghani, that is, before he fled the country, saying his decision to appoint loyalists to military positions was also a major problem that led to the fall of the military. And, and Oren, will there be any fallout or any repercussions uh, from this report, you think? Jake, honestly, I think that would be very hard to believe that we would see any sort of accountability or repercussions. And I say that because there was an equally scathing indictment of, of the U.S. coming from Cigar, the same agency, last August in the middle of the withdrawal. And that said, the U.S. got the resources, the personnel, the goals, the strategy all wrong over 20 years. And we haven't seen any accountability from that. Oren Lieberman reporting live for us from the Pentagon. Thanks so much. The Taliban's rapid takeover of Afghanistan has affected nearly every aspect of life for the Afghan people, especially, sadly, for Afghan women and girls who had come to believe they could at the very least seek an education. As CNN's Christiana Amanpour reports, 20 years of social progress were seemingly wiped out overnight, and now women, females, young and old, are desperately seeking alternatives. 
Wednesday morning in Kabul and we're going to girls' school through these plastic curtains and past prying eyes. Yes, this fashion studio has become an alternate education facility since the Taliban stopped girls from attending government high schools. 17-year-old Roxa wanted to be a doctor. Now she's learning to be a dressmaker. We're feeling very bad, she tells us. Girls are not able to go to school, staying home, doing nothing. We hope that this will change our life so we can be self-sufficient, have a profession, learn, earn money to support ourselves and our families. Neda wanted to be a professional soccer player. You're 17. You've never known the Taliban government. Did you ever imagine that this would happen to you, that you would be prevented from going to school? No, never. We tried our best for our future, but it's a dark one now because we're kept away from our schools. Nagina Hafizi started this fashion business with her sisters four years ago. Today, she's running the resistance. When the Taliban slammed the door in their faces, she opened hers up to high school girls, aiming to have them sufficiently trained to earn a living and support themselves within six to twelve months. She does this for 120 girls and women across three locations. You're helping them, but they all want to be doctors or an athlete or. You know, professionals. They want to go on to university. How do you feel about them having to be embroiderers or dressmakers? This is very upsetting, says Nagina. When someone is following their own dreams, it's very good. It's different when they're forced into doing something else, and it's a bad feeling because most of these girls want to go to university, become a doctor, a teacher, an engineer. It's very difficult for them, and I know that they can't do any other work. So at least they can learn the dressmaking profession for their future. For the record, the powerful deputy Taliban leader Sirajuddin Hakani told me that girls' public high schools would open again soon, and that of course women have the right to work within the Islamic framework. But 26 years ago, I had the same conversations about the same issues when the Taliban was first in charge. A lot of people want to know what you're going to do about the women issue. What about women's education, girls' education, women working, widows who have no other way to support themselves? I know that, especially in Western news media, it's a propaganda against that 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 we are against women education, which is not right. It's not correct. But the girls can't go to school. We've been to schools here that are all closed. We have just uh, told them that for the time being they should not come to office in school. So till the time that we can come out with some sort of solution. Even the youngest understands something is not right. Ten-year-old Aziza complains about having to stay home all day. We just do housework, cleaning, baking bread, and sweeping the floors. She says. I love my work. It's my right to work. And I need to work because、uh, I got education in this country, and the government spent money on me, and、uh, even my family. And I want to express myself to my society. Brave then, brave now. Only now, after more than two decades of progress for their wives, their daughters, and their family incomes, so many more Afghan men support them. Haji Noor Ahmad tells us, not even one percent of Afghan people are against women working. We don't want our people to grow up as if we're in a jungle. We want people to have culture, knowledge. We need food and work. 
Back at the design studio, these classes are not only open to high school students, but to older women who are suddenly out of work, like 30-year-old Rabia, who's a teacher. We feel suffocated, she says. Why can't we, in our own country, our own place, live freely, move freely? Wherever we go, whatever work we do, they put barriers in our way. We can't reach our goals in life. We're always afraid, whether the previous government or the Taliban's emirate regime. Rabia comes here to retrain and, like many of the mothers and wives, to have some kind of social life, like Noor Jan, whose daughter Neda wanted to become a soccer player. When I'm really upset, she tells me, my husband says I should come here so that at least I can meet others. My husband is so kind. We are all sisters here. So, Jake, imagine this is now after 20 years of U.S. and Western investment and of real genuine progress. The women's education was real genuine progress from the U.S. Uh, time here. And yet, as you see, that's that special government accountability report. And we talked to a female women's rights leader who said the same thing, that the Doha agreement without any conditions on the Taliban that they actually met was responsible for this, uh, for this collapse. And we've even talked to Taliban and their uh, associates who said that the president, Ashraf Ghani, just leaving like that did in fact lead to the collapse. So there's a lot of thought and hopefully accountability to go around after this because the girls and the people and the humanitarian crisis is the price that's been paid in Afghanistan, Jake. Christiane Amanpour reporting live for us from Kabul. Thank you as always. Farmers forced to give up their water so that firefighters can battle the very fires threatening their farms. A look at the impossible choices made when fire season falls in the middle of a mega drought. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series today, there have been nearly 25,000 wildfires across the U.S. so far this year. More than any previous year in the last decade, as CNN's Renee Marsh reports for us now. This year's fires and the severe drought in many parts of the United States are forcing firefighters to take water from wherever they can get it, which includes forcing farmers to stop watering their crops. These are mobile homes. Mobile homes and mansions on fire in Southern California. <laughs> Flames also turning homes to ash in New Mexico. Eleven large wildfires are currently burning across the U.S. So far, more than 1.3 million acres have burned. That's more than double the same period last year. We have never had a fire this big. New Mexico has been in the bullseye of a mega drought. The state's largest reservoirs are at critically low levels. The Calf Canyon Hermit Peak wildfire is the largest in the U.S. and bigger than New York City. Winga says high as 70 miles per hour have been fueling it. New Mexico recently issued an unprecedented order mandating farmers in some areas stop irrigating their crops, quote, in the interest of public safety to make water resources available for wildfire activity. Right now, all these sprinklers be running. Michael Quintana is a third generation farmer near Las Vegas, New Mexico. It's completely open. There is no water. As you can see, right now we have it completely open and there is no water coming out. All of his irrigation lines are dry. The wildfire is miles away from his 600-acre farm, and yet it will wipe out all of his crops because of the state order mandating he temporarily give up his water rights. 
Have you thought about what that means to your bottom line? Uh, it's, it's non-existent. At that point, we, we have no revenue from this farm. The water stopped flowing to this farm just four days ago, and this canal used to be full, but now it's just down to a puddle, and you still see the water line from where the water used to be. This was a canal before the state stopped water flow to its property. You have no idea how long you'll have to forego using your water or give up no. your water rights. There's, it could be months. It could be years. New Mexico's early, more intense fire season is sparking fear that extended firefighting activity could significantly deplete the area's dwindling water supply. It's actually in the forefront of my mind. Um, you know that uh, another catastrophe could be taxing on our water supply. Climate change has increased wildfire risk, and a new report for the first time maps areas with the greatest risk and how that is projected to increase over the next 30 years. A total 80 million properties are at risk, with 10 million facing moderate to extreme risk. Data projecting this will become the norm, and more farmers like Quintana will be forced to make the ultimate sacrifice, relinquishing water rights to save the lives of those in the line of fire. Jake, several other farmers have also temporarily given up their water rights to ensure that there's enough water to fight these fires. And New Mexico's governor asked the federal government to cover 100 percent of the disaster costs, including compensation for those farmers, due in part because of a prescribed burn set by the U.S. Forest Service that made this fire just intensify. All right, Renee Marsh, thank you so much. This Sunday, be sure to tune in for a CNN special report. Finally home, the Trevor Reed interview. I'll sit down with Trevor Reed and his family for his first exclusive interview since returning to America after being held in a Russian prison so unfairly for 985 days. I'm also going to talk to the families and loved ones of other Americans being wrongfully detained around the world. Again, it airs this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead, CNN. If you miss a show, you can always listen to our podcast. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow.